Got a question here. How close do you set up on roosted birds in the morning? Chris? Well, it depends on can I get into that roost in can I get in close to the roost without them seeing me and then with it all depends on the terrain. Most of the time I'm trying to get within about a hundred yards or so of that roost if I can get in close and not be seen. I know some people will set their blind and decoys right smack dab where the birds can literally sit up on the roost and look at the decoy spread. I know I, heck, we've done that down in, in Mexico with you on Gould. I usually will try to set up where maybe they can't quite see me from the roost, but as soon as they touch down on the field or wherever they're going to fly out, that's when they can see the decoys, and I want to be as close as I possibly can to that location, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, your reasoning for them not being able to see you off the limb is you you want to be able to call to them. You want to be able to kind of create that situation of who's over there? Who, who you know, what are they doing over yeah. there? I can't quite see them, which makes them come towards you in your direction. That's what you're pushing for there. A lot of times yep. when all set up in view of them, uh, it will be with the strutter decoy trying to elicit that um, you know, I, a gobbler's moved into your area and the gobbler's going to fly down and or the hens may fly right to that gobbler. Um, I've also had jakes and hens set up where I've set those up and a gobbler just sees that jake down there and they just, you know, they can't handle it. I would say birds that are less pressured, you can get away with more of that and it's you can be a little fancier and a little cuter. Uh, if you've got birds that are, you know, very well seasoned, I would probably go with Chris's approach where they can't see uh, your decoy spread. And they, you know, because in essence, they could just sit up on the limb because they see the turkey, the hen decoys. They see a Jake decoy, you know, they see a whole flock of turkey decoys, whatever it may be. And they're like, hmm, I've played this game a lot and I've heard a lot of different hunters. You know, they don't think necessarily like that, but. They know, and they're like, those birds, if they want to come to me, they're going to come over here. And if not, if they are over there, well, how come they're not moving? How can, you know, I'm sure birds sit there and look at the decoys and go, ah, something's not right with that. And so that's yeah. where the strategy of, you know, being just out of sight comes in. Um, Chris, that <laughs> I played recently on Facebook, I played the video of, um, a couple years ago, you were guiding for me uh, down in Mexico on, for the Goulds, and, and you had two archers in the blind, and the bird no. comes in, <laughs> and the the full strutter gets shot, and then you move, and you, and yeah. you had some bow issues, and uh, then Jonathan, you're like, all right, Jonathan, you're up, and sh head shoots that one bird, and literally sh just shoots his head off. That I mean, that thing was, that was such an awesome video. Yeah, no, it, it, it was fun. It, and I do, I feel bad for, for the first hunter. He was, it, he just got so flustered, but yeah, no, it could work. And, and that was a set where we were pretty darn close to the roost. So the birds, we were set actually in a spot where the, again, the birds could not physically see us, but they, we were just out of sight. And so as soon as they pitched out and hit the ground, now they can see the strutter. Because um, the other thing, and the other thing too, that people need to keep in mind, and this kind of gets lost in translation a little bit, I think. People know that turkeys have great eyesight, but then people think, well, but they but they can't see at night. Okay, well, no, they they don't they can't see at night like deer do. Um, but turkeys, their eyesight is much more. They they have much better visual acuity on detail and they have a much better ability at spotting movement, the slightest tiny movement than humans. Okay. So they're better at those things than humans. And they do see color. That's why they're the turkey's head is red, white, and blue. They see just like we do a little bit better in, in details and movement, but they see just about as good as we do in low light. So the other reason why I kind of like, setting up just out of their visual 
range while they're in the tree is because if you're getting in there and you're trying to set up, now it's one thing if you're shooting a shotgun and you're just going to slip in, sit down at the base of a tree or a rock or brush pile or whatever, get your gun on your, on your knee. That, that's, that's one thing. But when you're going to try to bow hunt, and you, especially if you're going to try to do it with a ground blind or you want to put a decoys in it, the more movement you have out under that roost, if you if you're going to be doing stuff under that roost, it needs to be pitch black, and you've got to be dead quiet. And you can't have a headlamp on. Oh golly, thank you for that. And I Diesel say piece. that, but I, I, you know, you would think that would just oh, be a given, but no, no, you're Jay. Don't spoil it, dang it! I'm going to have you on the podcast, and we're going to talk about some some out there guide <laughs> stuff. So don't don't. We're going to have some fun, but yes, dude, you nailed, thank you. I completely didn't even think about it. Oh my gosh. Do not have a headlamp on. Do not, and don't check your phone while you're out in the field because that goes, and that thing, okay. The turkeys, remember, they're up in the roost for safety. They pitch out and slide down in those fields and down to their, their flyout spot in places where they feel it's going to be safe. And if you're in there moving around in low light, they're going to see movement they don't they may not know what it is but they're going to be able to see that kind of movement and most turkey decoys are going to be of a darker color especially if you're putting a strutter out there so you're pulling that decoy out of a bag and now all of a sudden there's a big black ball and i can hear some weird sounds going on down there and there's movement the more they hear and the more they see something not quite right i i can't tell you how many times i think people end up not having the success in the morning hunts that they normally could see simply because the birds are like, mm, that seemed a little sketchy going that way. Eh, we're going to pitch out and go the other way this morning just because they're just unsure of what all that noise and movement was down over where they generally pitch out. So just there's been times, literally, if I want to hunt a roost site the next morning, I will go out at midnight in the pitch middle of the night and put the ground blind out. And I might even put the decoys out in the middle of the night and then just slip out of there. And that way, if it's me, my friends, or my clients, we can just literally just slip, 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 slip. I'll have the trick chairs, everything in there. All we need to do is just walk right down through it, go right across, slip into the blind, and just be done. Just so that way I'm not creating disturbance under the roost in the morning and making a bunch of noise and... and shiny headlamps and everything everything else. <laughs> my favorite is uh you get in and you're like i'm telling clients you know you're, we're going to be really really close like we're right on them i've got them pinned here and i go okay this is your tree you know actually before they get to the tree i'll say okay i'm going to take you over to your tree and when i stop that's your tree so just settle down right there and you know get ready and i'll point the direction you need to have your gun barrel and I can't tell you how many times you get over there and they're breaking limbs, branches, yep. getting their saws out, and literally. I mean, we're yep. fifty yards. We're so picture yourself up in the top of a tree, sitting on a limb, and literally you're just sitting up there. Here, here's Chris sitting up on a limb, in the dark, and he does it every day of his life. So Chris is sitting up there, and all of a sudden he's can't see what's going on but he hears a saw going off and he hears branches breaking do you think that he's going to be like hmm um yeah i'm going to fly down there no he's going to fly the opposite direction so sometimes when you you know i always like to talk about deer hunting you know coos deer specifically act like they're going to shoot back at you and guys are like what I'm like yeah <laughs> act like if they see you they're going to shoot so what do you do you stay out of sight same thing with turkeys. If you act like they're up there at the top of the tree, and if you're in range, they can literally shoot you with a pellet gun in the side of the head. Just think of it like that. Or a paintball gun, you know, slapping you in the yeah. side of the face. That might make you be a little more stealthy and kind of slide in and not have to flush your whole tree out and get it. You know, I have guys literally come and they're cracking every branch and they're kicking out all the pine needles and they're kicking, you know, just getting it all set. And then they lay their cushion down and then they go and then they sit yeah, on the cushion and the yeah. cushion goes. 
Yeah, exactly. It's, it's Cordura or you know, six hundred D Cordura, and you're going to be on rocks and, and branches. They're and sliding it around. In. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yep, that's that's going to be on. And so me, so again, we're we're totally blowing my my pocket. But that's exactly. So meanwhile, you and I are sitting back there going, just you just you know, the cartoon with the steam is coming out of our ears oh, and our yeah. eyes are spitting. You're, you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What are you doing? I, this was all perfect. What are you doing? Quiet. Shut up. Shut up. Quiet. Chris, uh, uh, one of the one of the things you mentioned was um, turkeys' eyesight, and they can see color. And you said red, white, and blue. And I know we've talked about it before, but since you mentioned it, I'm sure there's people <laughs> that hear that and go, "Why does red, white, and blue have any significance at all?" Can you explain that? Yeah, so they change color in their head to communicate different things. That's, I mean, that's the whole point behind it. They are a very, I mean, yes, they, they talk and they gobble and they yelp and cluck and all the other things, but just like we talk about elk stuff, um, a, a lot of the uh, of their communication is also visual cues. That's why he struts. But that's also why the heads change color, that the color changes in their head can uh, communicate different things. And so... They can have their head go all all red. They can have their head be a mix of you know their waddles are bright red. Their face, that's the size of the face, face is just this beautiful sky blue, and then maybe their forehead is just as as white as white can be. And then there's other times when the whole head just turns white. All those things mean different things. Um, there's you can have a little controversy and discussion about what a white head means. I am at this moment. I am still convinced that a white head is displayed when a bird believes that he is the dominant bird in the group or in the area. Because uh, you can see Jake's have white heads. Uh, a red, white, and blue head, in my opinion, based on all of the research and based on all the observations, red, white, and blue seems to be that head combination where a bird is showing off and trying to attract attention. He's trying, he's basically, uh, it is a, it's a neutral, in my opinion, it's a neutral color scheme as it is communicating to other gobblers, but it is a color scheme that is meant to show off and attract the hen. And then a all red head can mean anything from, you know, aggression or um, distress or nervousness or, you know, it, there's a there's a number of different situations where you'll see an all red head, but the red, white, and blue is my preferred color scheme, just because I have some birds in my area. You know, you might have a two year old bird that just got his butt whooped in all these other places. I want him to feel as though my decoy is neutrally speaking to him, and is just simply trying to show off for some hens. So that way, if that got the real gobbler comes in and he's a little shy, he doesn't feel threatened by the, the strutter decoy that I have. And if he's aggressive, well, he, heck, he can come in and just beat the piss out of it. But now, red, white, I whenever I talk about a turkey's head, you, you're right, Jay. I kind of automatically default to saying red, white, and blue because that's that's the one I, I prefer. How do you hunt turkeys in cold, rainy weather? sleep in <laughs> that's i was gonna say <laughs> i don't um one of the things that you know there's guys that are forced to only have two or three days where they're a lot you know they're able to go hunt because of you know work or what have you uh i've been fortunate to be able to hunt turkeys you know for a long time now and hunt them for you know 30 40 days uh, in a row and you know if I know that it's going to be just horrible weather a lot of times I won't go out but to answer your question there's several things that that you can do one of the things that comes in to, to my mind if you know it's going to be raining and cold and just nasty is you can get in some of these ground blinds and use that for cover and I'll have Chris speak to that because you actually can you know you can even pack in a little um, you know heater of some sort and you can most blinds are pretty water repellent and keep the water off you uh and you you know you can warm up inside the blind 
another trick I've seen, uh, Marvin Robbins, uh, who's passed away, he was an old timer, a mentor of mine, and a lot of people here in the Arizona area, he used to do a lot of turkey seminars. He would always say, um, I always carry a couple bread bags, plastic bread bags, um, and I put my box call in the bread bag and then I got a rubber band and I sealed the bag up and he would actually play up on stage the box call inside the bread bag and it sounded the same. It basically sounded pretty much the same, a little bit quieter. Uh, but he talked about hunting with a mutual friend, Joe Slayton over in California uh, in, you know, having a lot of rain over there and the call, you know, the friction calls constantly being wet. He said it wasn't a problem cause I would keep my box calls, uh, in, a, in a bread bag and called, you know, he talked about calling in a lot of turkeys right in rain, uh, with, a you know, the box call in the plastic bag. And I think you could also, uh, take a bigger sheet of plastic and put it over the top of you and you could you know play your pot and peg or or, or slate calls if you will uh and you know keep those strikers dry keep the surface dry and then you know technology they've even come out with you know wet boxes so they've got um material on it that actually box call sounds just fine and soaking wet you can literally turn the sink on and completely submerge your call and pull it up and it, it it sounds pretty darn good as well as there's pot and peg calls where they have strikers and surfaces that work uh just fine wet so you know if, if you're hunting and know that you're probably going to be encountering some weather um I, I would look into those things chris do you have anything to add there yeah no there's like you said there's a different ways you can keep your calls dry if you're using friction calls um the other thing too is for us from a behavior standpoint a lot of times you might not see those birds out you know the gobblers out there strutting very much they just might be kind of puffed up and just trying to beat the cold weather themselves but i do see oftentimes there there can be times where depending on how the rain and wind is going don't be surprised to find some of those birds staying out in some fields. Now, if they have the ability to get in out of the weather in some, like, cedars and some thicker areas, okay, that might work. But in certain habitats, I've also seen them just stay out in the fields because it's just safer. They can see a little bit better if if, if it's just loud in the trees and, and in the cover and the rain is just hitting everything and everything's moving and blowing around. It's very hard for them to keep tabs on any possible predators and so you can see them just kind of head out in the open a little bit more you just have to have a little bit more patience you've got to figure out where the birds are going to want to be um i do out here in my country where you have those uh areas of cedars um those can be great because even if the wind is blowing and the wind and the rain is, is coming down there's still a quiet area so and you don't have a lot of a lot of movement going on so they can get in around those pockets of cedars and take cover especially out of the wind but I've also seen them out in a wide open field, and you just got to, again, you got to figure out where they want to go, what their pattern is, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Get yourself in a ground blind if you can do it. Um, yeah, and just bring in a little buddy heater, and don't be shocked that sometimes those birds will stay on the roost longer in the morning as well. So just, just have some patience, sit it out, and because uh, the birds are going to be out there. I mean, it's not like they can go in their house and you know sit in the living room and watch tv they, they live there they're they're not going anywhere they just may be sucking up the miserable weather like you are and they're just a little bit slower to to respond to a call or move your way i think you hit something there that i want to make sure that people understand is more times than not in rough weather whether you have high winds you have rain or snow almost all the time I've noticed that they will literally, just like Chris said, they'll stay on the limb. They'll stay roosted for a lot longer than what you think. Uh, I've had birds actually roosted before, have a you know two-inch snowstorm overnight, three-inch snowstorm, um, and you go there the next morning, you set up, and you don't hear anything, nothing, quiet as can be. And yep. you sit there, and you're like, I know they're here in the trees. It gets light. And you call, they don't answer, nothing, total, just zero. And so you kind of zip everything up and you go and you get up and you look up and they're literally roosted in the trees right where they were. And they're just, whether their head's under their wing or they're just going to be quiet and they're not 
gobbling. I've seen them do that in rain. I've seen them do it in wind and I've seen them do it in snow. So keep that in yeah. mind. Will gobblers on the roost respond to a call after dark? This is from Blake B. Hunts. If so, what is the best call to use? Chris? Sometimes. Um, there have been times when I've seen birds respond, you know, after it's after it's finally gone dark. But most of the time, there's that little, it depends on when they fly up. Um, if they fly up to the roost early in the evening and there's still plenty of daylight, you can have them up there just gobbling like crazy for, you know, 30 minutes. But there's been oftentimes, just like Jay said earlier, about, you know, them just making a mad dash to the roost. They may make a mad dash, you know, with the last, 10 minutes of actual visible light they fly up to the tree he might gobble once or twice and then they're 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 shut down they're going to bed so typically i usually anticipate being able to get a bird to gobble or hearing a bird to gobble by about the time it gets dark maybe a little bit after that but if if you're talking well it's dark and now it's 15 30 minutes later no that bird is usually asleep. And one of the things that I like to do is I like to use the coyote howler. Um, Primos makes the one that I've used for a long, long time. It's purple. It's a three-way. It's a peacock, coyote, and woodpecker, I think, all in one. I don't know what they call it, but it's it's purple. They've made it forever. Uh, makes a real shrill coyote sound. Uh, and... You know, to take this kind of a step further, is there a call to use? That's the call that I use the most for goulds and the most for merriams. And most of the hunting that I do is I do a coyote howl. Um, now, one of the things that you have to understand is when you do that, if you're too close to them uh, and blow that call, if you're 50, 60, 70 yards from the birds, a lot of times they'll it'll spook them because they think a coyote literally is underneath their tree or they'll shut up so at night i'll use that a lot more than i would in the morning because i don't care as long as they gobble if i don't know they're there and i'm just prospecting and trying to find a bird i'm pretty aggressive with my coyote howl i'm just trying to get a bird to shock as soon as he shocks depending on how far away he is if he's real close i'm not going to make any more sound and i'm going to let it get completely pitch back dark and i'm going to slip out of there if the bird is you know half mile three quarters of a mile or uh, longer away if i'm by myself i'm going to try and get a lot closer to that bird and try it again and try and get a i'm trying to pinpoint exactly where that bird is the most deadly combination of that is if you have someone with you um, you either send that person in forward advancing towards where you think the bird is gobbling and what we normally do is, you know, say we'll give it a three a three minute count or a five minute count, and then I I'm going to hit that call, and then you are you've moved steadily towards that direction, and then wait when you get to your three minute count, sit there and wait. I'm going to call, and so that person then can pinpoint where that bird is, or I'll do the opposite. I'll have the person stay where we just were and coyote howl once I get in there closer and sometimes we'll be able to say okay and and do it every three minutes and then so the person can advance up and I mean you can literally get as really close where with your binoculars you can actually spot the bird gobbling so in essence I'm back coyote howling every three minutes and Chris is beelining towards the sound then he's counting in his head three minutes and then he's going to stop, listen, I hit the call again. Okay, the bird's still another 400 yards away. He, he's counting to three. I'm counting to three minutes in my head. We get to that three-minute period. Boom, he hits it again. And Chris, or I hit it again, and, and Chris has the bird pinpointed at 115 yards. And then Chris marks on his on-X uh, map and then marks a physical, you know, if there's an old blocked-off road, he actually puts a log or puts a mark of some sort, stacks three rocks up. So then in the morning, Chris drags me right back to that spot and says, okay, here's my three rocks. We need to walk 50 paces that direction, and we're going to be right on them. That's how I roost birds. Chris? Yep. 
<laughs> Anything to add? Yep. No, no. I, I mean, obviously, ter- terrain is going to make a you know difference on where you know out where I'm at. It's really t- relatively open, and so yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I I will make sure I've got a spotting scope with the truck with me, and I can get up on these vantage points on the hills. Yeah, I mean, at this point now, I on the properties I manage, I know right where they're going to roost. But if it's a new if it's a new property, or from helping somebody, I can just get to the top of the hill somewhere so I can see that river bottom. I'll listen, hear a gobble, and just get the binoculars out and start going through with a spotting scope. And you can, you'll oftentimes you'll be able to see them sitting up there. And then again, that's where you've got to, if you can get somebody out there with you, or you have the ability to just kind of just start, you know, shortening that distance to where you can actually pinpoint, okay, that is the tree. You know, and the thing that, too, while we're talking about this, the other thing that is so handy these days is when you do have something like Onyx maps or you know google earth sometimes just with the train features and field edges and roads or ridges or whatever you can figure out you know you're looking on on x it gives you a little blue dot where you are you can sit there and say oh that's where i think that bird is and oh there's a field line or oh this is where the ridge is oh that's where the road goes around oh i can go here it really can help you know pinpoint the location of that bird and then also how you're going to get in on that bird uh, the next morning. Yeah. And one thing to add there that I've been doing, um, with, with specifically with the on X and it's the same with an aerial view that you have on, you know, if you're using Google earth or on X maps, what I use on X, but when the scenario where Chris is coyote howling and I'm moving closer and a gobbler's a long ways away, Chris is still coyote howling and we're, you know, either by our watch or counting every three minutes, and he's calling and I'm getting closer and closer when I finally get pretty darn close, but maybe, maybe, you know, it's gotten dark enough where he's just not answering anymore, but I can still see a little bit where there's still, you know, I can see, okay, there's on that next ridge, there's an actual point that comes down and there's a Canyon there. I'll actually open up my on X and I'll look at the aerial and the topo and I'll mark my position where I'm at there, where I'm, you know, so I don't have the bird like, necessarily roosted and know the tree but i'll mark where i'm at then i'll i'll point and touch the screen with how you can on on x and and i'll point to where i think the bird is and i'll mark it then i'll pull out and then when chris and i get back together or we get back to camp i can say well i marked the last place where i heard him and this is from my estimation across this canyon on that ridge, this is where I think he is. Well, we get back to camp and we're looking at the map a little bit better. We're like, well, geez, on the other side of the canyon on that ridge is a blocked off forest road. And we can actually park over here, walk that ridge top, and we'll be right across from the mark that you put on the map. And that will put us within 100 or 200 yards of that bird I can't tell you how many times by marking where I'm at the last place I heard him and then marking where I think the bird is just dials me in that much closer to being able to either a find a different way in that's quieter and easier without having to cross a canyon or b it just allows me to have a, a you know, a better option to attack that bird. It's huge when you start using these mapping um, devices to kind of hone in where those birds are. And or uh, let's say that something comes, we get back and Dar's got, guys, I got three, a group of three or four gobblers roosted. I think we can go. We don't even go to that spot the next morning. Well, that afternoon or during the next day, I can go over on that side of the ridge and go, okay, those birds were roosted somewhere right here. And I can look around and I'm like, oh, there's tracks all over right here. Yeah, this is exactly where they must have been. It's just good to keep a, a basic a journal or a log on your map of where you hear turkeys and where you hear them roosted. I want to take a second here and thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, my friend Cody Nelson, the glassing guru. He's the optics manager at GoHunt.com Gear Shop. If you have any optical needs at all, give Cody a call directly at 702-847-8747. You can also send him an email at optics at GoHunt.com. 
You can also text him at 602-399-3699. I want to thank Go Hunt for their sponsorship. Also remind you guys, we're in application season. The Go Hunt Insider is the best Western hunting resource tool out there. It's got the best draw odds and harvest statistics available. You can go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott. Just by signing up, you're going to get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card. I want to thank gohunt.com. I also want to thank Kuyu. That's K-U-I-U. Uh, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. Kuyu.com. Uh, Kuyu is the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. Phonescope.com. I want to thank them. Use the jscott20 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all orders. On xmaps.com, use the jscott20 promo code. You're going to get a 20% discount on all orders at Onyx Maps. And then apexmunition.com. Apex Ammunition, it's the home of the TSS, the Tungsten Super Shot. That is the shotgun shells that I'm going to be using on my upcoming turkey hunts. Go to apexmunition.com to find out more. Guys, let's get back to the episode. Do turkeys migrate like other animals seasonally or stay in the same general area? Chris? It depends on the species, uh, subspecies. I, you know, I can tell you real grand turkeys in the Midwest are known for their long distance movements in the winter, you know, to winter ranges. And then they will come back uh, moving up and down those river bottoms. They can move seven miles or more uh, up and down seasonally just in their winter flocks. And then Merriam's absolutely will follow the snow line, and they will be in lower elevations in the you know, ponderosa pine, oak brush stuff down in the winter and lower elevations and in the summer. Yeah, if you're in the higher mountain areas, like, for instance, I used to hunt in north-central Colorado, and those birds would move easily 10 miles up, up and down is you know it, on train miles i mean it may only be five miles from point a to point b but they've got to go over three different mountain ridges to you know small mountain ridges to get from their summer area to their winter area and their summer area was above ten thousand feet and their winter area was down you know seven thousand feet so absolutely they will move long distances and that's why you've got to pay attention in the mountainous country, you've got to pay attention to where um, that snow line is. And then I tell people all the time, if you're going to come out to Nebraska or Kansas uh, and you're going to hunt turkeys, you've got to pay attention. If, if you're out goose hunting, or in, and I talk about this in eastern Colorado, people all the time will be out waterfowl hunting, goose hunting, and duck hunting in the winter in the eastern part of, the, of Colorado and they see a, a big winter flock of Rios and they're like, dude, this is going to be awesome. So they go and get permission from the landowner to be able to turkey hunt there the next spring. It's a limited draw unit. So they go put in for the limited draw tag. They come back there in the spring and there's not a bird around because they're five miles down the river bottom on somebody else's, you know, completely different property with a different ag field. So yeah, they will move quite a bit. You've got to pay attention to that. Chris, we've got the next question of decoys and decoy positioning, decoy setups. The can of worms <laughs> has been opened. What's, what, what, what do you think? They, are they just wanting us to just say, okay, here's everything about decoy, because we can, I guess. But was there any more to that question? Nope. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, Decoy layout suggestions and tips. Goodness that's I have I literally have on the turkey module an entire video series discussion. You could talk about that for a couple hours because there are changes that I mean I changed my decoy setup just depending on the season. You know, early season I'll have more decoys, strutters. As we start moving into the middle part of the season, I might just ditch the strutter altogether and just go with the Jake and a couple hens. And when we start getting towards late season, sometimes I might just have a single hen out there. There's there's times where also I had a question coming similar to this is you know somebody said well if all I can do is afford one decoy and if I could just buy one decoy right now what would I get? You know 
man. So how do you want to? How do you want to? It's like saying if you could only afford home? one bullet. Well, I mean, it's like man. Well, you're kind of you know, limiting I, yourself. I, yeah, I, I tell people, you know, for me, if I'm just going to buy one decoy, I think now I've I for the bulk of the season, uh, for a variety of different reasons, I think I've kind of settled on. I would probably take a me personally. And, and I'm not, and I know you and I have ribbed each other relentlessly about Avian X versus Dave Smith decoys. Um, I do like the body position of the Avian X um, Jake. Um, they have the they have the blow up version, and they've got the HDR the the, the plastic version now, the, the hard body one now. But I like that body position because he's oh he he demonstrates a submissive posture. And I can do a lot with that decoy. So I tell people, you know what? I kind of lean towards having a Jake decoy. If I'm only going to buy one. Because I can pretend that the hens, my calling, simulating a bunch of hens talking, I can I can set up in places where, okay, it might be difficult for an approaching gobbler to actually see the hens that are maybe in some sort of cover or, you know, out of view. But behaviorally a jake or a gobbler would be out in the open so that he could show off or strut or do whatever so i can have a single jake set out in front of me and still have a plausible scenario that the gobbler doesn't need to see a hen per se because the other thing too is and reason why i lean this way is because biologically hens are supposed to go to the gobbler so you'll hear a lot of people say and i talk about that in the in the video series we started out with decoys it was always a hen decoy why did we start? Why did the industry start bringing Jake decoys to the market? Well, because biologically, the hen is supposed to go to the gobbler. So you'd have a lot of times where, back in the old days, where and even today, where you can put a hen decoy out there, and the gobbler approaches, he sees the hen from eighty yards, you know, hundred yards out or eighty yards out, and he just stops and struts. Because biologically, the hen is supposed to go to him if, if she wants to breed. And the only way to get him to finish and come into the setup is if he thinks there's already a gobbler or a jake or a male turkey on scene that now he has to out display, he has to, you know, kick out of there, you know, assert dominance, whatever. If you put a jake or a, 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 a tom decoy in the, in the mix, well, now that gobbler needs to come all the way in but that's where we have the discussion of what period of the season are we in because early season, when there's a lot of displaying going on and there's a lot of, of interspecific competition between gobblers for, for buying for hens, okay, a strutter in that mix actually works well. But you get to a point in season, a lot of places, all of a sudden, now gobblers have just been beaten up eight ways from Sunday They've all established their pecking order. They all have, uh, you know, established their areas of, of operation. They may not want to come in on a situation where you have uh, a strutter. So, you know, I talk about the whipping boy setup where I, I put a little of everything out there. But what's your what are your thoughts? How do you want to tackle that? Well, whole I, I think it's let's break it down. In you talk about early season, mid season, late season. Let's just start with early season. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that in early season, a strutter decoy. If I could only choose one, I'd probably take a, a Dave Smith strutter decoy. I'd put the full tail fan, and I'd put the you know the old school strutter. You know where we'd put the wings on. Now they're making. I just got the new one. It, they make it with the wings already, and they actually painted up my Merriam's and Gould's colors, so it's got a little more white on it. Early yeah, season, nice. I'm going to use a strutter decoy. The one thing that I am reluctant to tell people to use a strutter decoy is if you're hunting on public land, I don't recommend it because you could get yourself shot. If you have access to private land and you only can take one decoy, I would go with a strutter decoy, like Chris is talking about. They're trying to establish their pecking order. There's a lot of, you know, shenanigans going on early and fighting and, you know, trying to establish who's dominant and who's subordinate and, and what have you. That's where strutter early season, they just come unglued and they come and they want to fight. Agreed. And and Chris agrees with that. So I if, guess... If, 
if if you're only if you're only going to bring one, right? If if you have the ability to have multiple, then that's where I talk about my whipping boy setup, to where you, you have the strutter in the in you have strutter out there, you have a Jake, and then you've got a couple hands, or or you, again, you don't even have to have hands. In my opinion, I think they they go a long way in helping because you're making the sound of hens and then they see the males and they assume the hens are there. So you're saying you don't even have to have the hens, but correct me if I'm wrong, early season, you're more likely to have hens, strutter and Jake in essence, the whole flock out there, much better results early season than say late season with the whole flock out there. Correct. And there's times I'll have eight to 10 decoys out. Right. I might have, I mean, it, yeah, the whole enchilada out there. But, yeah, but exactly. let's it's, talk about yeah. your whipping boy setup because I love I love the scenario of giving the gobbler a choice. So talk about that. Yeah, so basically I'm, I'm going to have – you never know what gobbler you're going to have coming in. And so you can have the lovers and you can have the fighters. It's just like any anything. Um, and there's some birds that they don't want to – engage a strutter they don't want to engage another tom but quite honestly they they would love the opportunity to to beat up on a jake or maybe they just want to come in and show off and just just test the waters a little bit so i always will put a a early 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 season right put a a strutter where i think i'm going to take the shot and usually with my clients and just like what you you know we did down in mexico most of the time especially the ground blind at 10 yards 10 yards in front of the of the ground blind, smack dab. Now, that's with archery. If I've got a shotgun hunter, then a lot of times I'll, I'll just go ahead and put it at 20 because I know the shotgun pattern is probably going to be a little bit better rather than having it so stupidly close. But with an archery, I'll set it up 10 yards. I'll put the, the strutter exactly where I think the best location is for that hunter shooter to take the shot. But. If the gobbler does not want to come into the strutter, I will take and put a jake decoy, usually five to seven yards back behind it, away further away from the further away from the blind, and then off to the side, left or right of that strutter, where that shooter can also get a shot. So, if the bird wants to come straight into the strutter, great, I'm going to put him right where I want him. But if he doesn't want to come to the strutter and he wants to come to the jake. I also put him right where I know that the shooter can take a shot, but now and, it, and it's still at a fixed range, so like 15 yards. But I'm going to, and then with the hens, I'm going to spread out my set, and I'm going to have the hens spread out no closer than probably about five to seven steps between each of them. Most of the time I'm doing seven to 10 or 15 steps between the hens. I want space around those decoys because, A, Turkeys generally are spaced out a little bit when they're feeding and just milling around. But more importantly, I want that bird, that real gobbler, if he doesn't want to go after the, the strutter, if he doesn't want to go after the jake decoy, but he wants to come in and strut for the hens, he's got room in which he can move in and out of the hens without getting too close to the two male decoys, if that makes sense. Chris, let's pretend that you're a, the, to give people a perspective of, you know, you're basically creating a triangle, but if you're looking at the face of a watch, it sounds like you're having the strutter at 10 o'clock and you're putting the jake at 2 o'clock and you, or excuse me, the hunter is sitting in the center of the watch. And then you're let's, also, let, let's, go ahead. Let, no, let me, let me change. I see where you're going with your analogy. Let me change it a little bit if I may. Yep. My ground block, the hunter is at six. Six o'clock, okay. At the six on the face, we're looking at the old dial, uh, the old arms on the clock. So the, the, the hunter is sitting on the number six. My strutter decoy would be dead center in the middle of the clock where, the, where, the, where all the hands of the clock come together. He's, the strutter is dead center in the middle of the clock. And then depending on if my hunter is left-handed or right-handed, and just that's just kind of how they like to shoulder this gun or draw their bow, I will put my Jake decoy at 10 or 11 o'clock or 1 or 2 o'clock. Does that make sense? I assume 10 or 11 if they're right-handed and 
one or two yep. if they're left-handed. Yes. Yep. And then where will because, you feather the hens yep. out from there? The the hens will be more like three o'clock to four it. o'clock, but more towards back towards the blind, not out towards the incoming bird. You want the correct. You want your your gobbler to be out in in the middle. You want your Jake for a right-handed shooter to be out to the left about seven to ten steps. And then you want hens feathered back towards the hunter at six, six o'clock so that they have the option to skirt not only the Jake and the strutter, but skirt around for a right-handed shooter. That gobbler would kind of skirt, not mess with the Jake or with the strutter and come straight over to the hen. Exactly. But it's just, it's just deadly. But wouldn't you say 99 times out of 100, the incoming gobbler is going to, early season, is going to engage either with the strutter or either with the jake, and it would be fairly rare to not engage them at all and come to the hens. Correct. Yes, and that's why I put those two right exactly where I want them to go. Yep, absolutely. And sometimes sometimes they will run right by the Jake and then just beat, go straight to the gobbler. Sometimes they stop and beat up on the, that's why I call them the whipping boy. Sometimes they'll come smoking in and they'll go straight to the Jake because they're like, nah, we're going to kick his butt first and then we're going to come over to the strutter. And so depending on the hunt and, and how, you know, I watch everything unfold just like you do with our hunters. A lot of times I just tell people just watch the show. Let them go ahead and beat up on the, the, the whipping boy. Let them beat them up. And then as they settle in and start strutting and maybe working their way to the gobbler, then you shoot them or let them go beat up the gobbler too. And then when they're all done, then you shoot them. You know, that's the beautiful thing about these ultra-real decoys these days. I did finally buy the, the Dave Smith. Uh, I got the the, uh, the Jake Strutter. Uh, I just like the idea of having just a small, and body. I like what Dave Smith yeah, I like what Dave Smith did. Is, is they didn't make it so Primos. I used the Killer B for years at, because I like the I like on that because the tail moves. It's on a spring loaded little deal. I, I love that from a wind standpoint. I talk about that in the other videos, but um, I do like the fact that Dave Smith made their Jake Strutter only about twenty percent smaller than their biggest. So it's not a giant decoy, but yet it's not stupidly fake small you know what i mean it's, it's a good size uh, it's easier to handle it's, it's a perfect ass kicker <laughs> it, it's, it's exactly it because a, a real gobbler comes in and, and again behavior is key body size matters when you are in a conflict the bigger the per, bigger the guy you are the more likely you're probably going to beat up on a smaller opponent and, and in the in the world of animal conflict body size matters so and a real gobbler comes in there, even though he may have gotten his butt whooped a time or two, and he's a subordinate technically within the real flock. He might be a subordinate Tom. He comes in and sees a bird that's 20% smaller than him or, or at least smaller. That just gives him the confidence to be like, okay, all right, I can take this guy. So, yeah, I and I did like the fact that, you know, you can, you can put a broadhead in the middle of a, keep on ticking okay so that's your early season your whipping boy setup um and then do you let do you let an encounter dictate that all of a sudden okay now you're mid-season and you're going to do a different scenario or do you just know that okay i'm you know i know right about now is when we're going to taper or we're going to change the full flock set up with the whipping boy set up, and then what do you go to from there? Yeah, I'll, I'll let the birds dictate it because, I mean, different flocks in different areas, even on our different properties, can be well, different. So if, there, it, it, if you spend a lot of time hunting through the season, you'll be able to see this yourself. So I use the birds to tell me when I need to pull that strutter. And typically that's what I do is I pull the strutter first. A lot of times what you'll see is all of a sudden those birds will want to come in, but then they just drip. They, they just hang out. They just, they hang towards the backside of the decoys or they stay out there 50, 60 yards and they strut and they gobble, strut and gobble, strut and gobble. And then they just kind of fold up their wings and they'll be like, oh, well, oh, well, I guess that guy's already got those hands. I'm just going to keep moving on and I'll go find somebody else. Cause they don't want to fight anymore. 
if I see that, that's when I'm like, okay, yanking the strutter. And, and sometimes I'll do that while I'm hunting. So in the morning, we'll have the setup, just get the strutter out there. The birds just show a tendency not to want to come into the spread. If they wander off, but I'm in a spot where I know they're going to loaf for the bulk of the day, I'll just sneak out of the out of the blind or I'll sneak out of our set, go over, grab the strutter, yank him out, put him in his, in his case, tuck him away, get back in the blind and just sit and call and see if I can get them to circle back and look. Sometimes just yanking that strutter out is what they, they're like, oh, okay, well, now I don't have to worry about that spike. Maybe I'll come in. I let the birds tell me that. But generally speaking, by the time you're in that somewhere in that second week of season, that's kind of when I start look and i say season because most states time their hunting seasons to co- coexist with how the birds are cycling behaviorally in their reproductive cycle so in general most states start their seasons when turkeys are busting up out of the winter flocks when they're starting to show off when they start you know the gobblers are showing interest of hens and the hens are starting showing interest with gobblers and so by that behavioral cycle about two weeks into most seasons is when i see that okay we might start needing to go ahead and removing this strutter out of here and just putting a jake out there and then from there i'll just keep again i just keep going from that point on and watching the behavior of the toms once it starts to get looking like where the toms are just looking for those lone hens or just hens by themselves I'll yank the strutter. I'll, I mean, excuse me. I'll yank the Jake out of it altogether and just run a couple of hens. And typically, I'll run a couple of hens only because, if my opinion, and this has been my experience, if I just run a single hen, and I still do from time to time, if I just run a single hen, I get gobblers that want to hang up. But if I have like a like an upright hen or a semi-upright hen, and then maybe a, a couple feeding hens off to the side. It seems as though I don't get as many hang-ups because I, and this is just nothing but conjecture on my part, but behaviorally, it would make sense that there's a couple hens hanging together that maybe that one hen doesn't want to leave the other two hens there, and so they're just kind of loosely aggregated to there to where it encourages the bird to come a little bit closer. But if I'm getting late season, I'm having those hens spread out pretty good i'm not having them all clustered per se but um i just let the birds dictate what i do with my decoy spread but in general as the season progresses i'm removing toms out of my spread 